Welcome to The Twelfth Story, a podcast from the Mercantile Library where readers have gathered since 1835 to connect, debate, and discuss. On today's episode, we welcome author Carter Sickles talking about his book, The Prettiest Star, with Linda Sider, Executive Director of Caracol, Greater Cincinnati's nonprofit AIDS service organization devoted to positively changing lives in the fight against HIV-AIDS. In a starred review, Kirkus called The Prettiest Star powerfully affecting. The novel, set in 1986, is about a young man dying of AIDS who returns to his Ohio hometown where people think homosexuality is a sin and the disease is divine punishment. Carter and Linda, welcome. All right. Well, thanks for having us here at the library today to talk about this amazing book, and there is so much to say about it. So I'm really glad to be here. Clearly, you know, this fits with the work that I do. Um, and it's exciting to read something that I think really f- reflects the early to the 80s, I should say, in terms of just what the HIV epidemic looked like in this country. Mm. So, Carter, first of all, why this subject? Why did you decide to write about this? Um, well, thanks, Linda, for doing this and for this opportunity. It's great to be here. Um, so I uh, I started writing this story um that turned in this novel because I had I remembered watching this episode of Oprah when I was a kid, where this man um, in West Virginia who was HIV positive um, had gone swimming. I think it was like 1987, and he was kicked out of the pool. And uh, Oprah Winfrey went to that town, and the and the community went to her show and said really hateful, vitriolic things about this man. Um, while he was there in the audience. And like as a kid, I didn't really understand, you know, I, I don't think I really understood it, um, but it, it stuck with me, kind of lodged, that story kind of lodged itself in my brain. And then um, I, as a writer, I keep like lists of ideas of things I want to write about, and that one kept coming up. Uh, what would it look like for a gay man who's HIV positive in that time in 1986, 87, to return to his hometown, this town that he couldn't wait to escape, this town and family that didn't um, accept him, and then he's dying, and and what would that really look like? So that was kind of the impetus, and I think, um, you know, the AIDS epidemic has been written about um, quite a bit, but usually those stories and those novels take place, like, in New York City or San Francisco. for good reason, right? Because those places were just devastated. Um, but I, there was a small population of men who had to go back to these rural spaces for various reasons. And I, and I hadn't read, there are a few books, but I hadn't read a lot about that. And so I, I wanted to write about that experience. And it's such a real experience at that time. Um, and it's, it's good to read something about that point in time in our history in the AIDS epidemic that does involve a character in what we know now as a flyover state, you know? Right. Um, and it's such a real experience. And you talk so much about, you mentioned the pool incident. There was so much discrimination yeah. at that time. And it just, your book, I think, really reflected what it was like for so many people living with HIV, dealing with the fact that they literally have a terminal illness, and then also just the community's reaction to, you know, for what they thought for the first time meeting someone who's gay. 
Right. Um, so, you know, you had stigma on top of stigma. Right. And I think you described that so well. So this book, um, Growing Up in a Rural Town, does that reflect your experience? Um, in a way, I mean, I was young, like I said, when I watched this. I mean, young teen. But I, what I remember from the AIDS epidemic when I was that young is just like the ugliness that people had, um, that there were a lot of jokes about don't give me AIDS, you know, don't touch me, you'll give me AIDS. Making fun of Haitians and other people. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't remember that as much, but I remember for sure just like mm -hmm. the queer stuff. Mm -hmm. So just like how intense homophobia was. And I was um, like, I didn't know any gay people. There was no one out in my school, you know, during mm -hmm. that time. Like I didn't know anyone queer definitely no one trans like that just wasn't in my view I don't I didn't know um but like um moments like this like for some reason reason which I understand later like why did that connect with me and I think it was because that show um because I saw this I it was the ugliness of this community and how they were ostracizing him but it was also like probably one of the first times I saw a gay man from a rural place on TV, like who was out mm -hmm. um, and who looked like my cousins, mm -hmm. you know, my neighbors. Um, I just hadn't seen any representation of gay men except if they were p portrayed in movies as either villains or, you know, clowns. Right, total stereotypes. Right. Yeah, these stereotypes. So I think um, that was like probably what made an impression on me as well, is just seeing this young gay man kind of stand up for himself and um and then it took me a while many years still to, to figure out my own um sexuality and gender but i think um it's really important mm -hmm. well see. i think that you you document that mm -hmm. journey so well and you know one of the other things that really stood out to me about the book was some of the themes i loved that the sister was so obsessed with killer whales mm. and people's reaction was like, why do you care about them? Why do you care about killer whales? They would eat you if they could. And she would educate people about, no, they're loving. They live in families. They have pods. They, when one disappears, they miss each other. Um, and so I love the theme of the whales and so much of the book is about family and connections mm -hmm. or the lack of, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, so the whales, so Jess, yeah, she's 14 and she has a sort of whale obsession and, uh, you know, she's never been to the ocean, she's never really been out of Ohio. And um, I think as a writer, I try to think about who these characters are and tap into them in a way, like what are their obsessions or their fears or their interests. And for her, um, it was fairly early on, but I was thinking about um, like what TV shows would she watch when she was <laughs> a kid, and then what would she watch when she was you know younger, like ten. And then I was thinking about my own memories of the eighties when we didn't have all like we only had four cha channels, I think. So there was a lot of <laughs> with like with a dial, yeah, with a dial. <laughs> there was a lot of PBS, and there were a lot of nature shows on. Um, so I was thinking about that, and then. I happened to watch this documentary, Blackwater, which was about um, SeaWorld yeah. and raising whales in captivity. And it just sort of came together. And I was like, what if she was really obsessed with whales, you know, the way some teenage girls are obsessed with horses and that will be <laughs> her kind of thing. And then as I had to do research on whales and read more and more about them, um, those 
um, elements that you pointed out that they are very sort of family oriented, they're matriarchal, they mourn their dead. Like I learned all that and then that's really it resonated, right, with a lot of the themes Absolutely. in the novel. So it just kind yeah. of worked in that that way. There yeah. was also a SeaWorld in Ohio. There was? Yeah. Huh. I went to it when I was a kid. <laughs> and it uh, I think it it didn't close down until like late nineties, early two oh, thousands. Wow. Huh. Yeah, it was up near Cleveland, I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, that was her dream <laughs> right. to to go to SeaWorld or to see the ocean and see the right. see the whales. Um, yet, you know, that was so important to her, and she would talk so much about their connection with each other, but she couldn't connect with her brother, or she could and kind of skim off because mm -hmm. she was so afraid of the fact that he was sick and didn't know how to react and the fact that the community turned against them and it embarrassed her. Um, such a real reaction for a 14-year-old. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I think she had this deep connection to her brother, but then she was sort of navigating all the lies that were being told to her by the other family members. You know, no one would tell her what was going on with her brother, so she had to sort of figure that out. So they've already layered on all this shame. If you're gay, then you have to carry this shame. So I think that's the only kind of view of it that she had. And then, of course, right, um, people in the town uh, ostracize them. So um, she tries to do the right thing, but at times, yeah, she um, is afraid to kind of stand up for her brother. I yeah, I think there, there were a lot of characters in the book that tried to do the right thing, um, and the right thing was often misguided and hurtful. Mm -hmm. um, thinking that, you know, if I protect my family against this person who's living with they or dying of AIDS, I should say, um, they'll be okay. I mean, it's just this chain reaction of, like, fear that just rippled through the community mm -hmm. that led mm -hmm. to just some horrible consequences for Brian, the person dying of HIV. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention that just really resonated with me that I loved, loved, loved about this book are all your references to David Bowie. Yeah. including the title <laughs> of the book is the title of a David Bowie song. And if you could just talk a little bit about that. Why David Bowie? <laughs> yeah, kind of the same thing. Like I was thinking about Brian and who his, um, what music, what TV, would he have listened, would he have watched, what music would he have listened to. And um, I think David Bowie came up pretty quickly for me. And, uh, you know, I think then as I worked on the novel, David Bowie became this kind of touchstone. It became a way to help frame, you know, as you said, the title, um, the uh, different parts in the, the novel are sort of framed with dif different David Bowie um, titles and, uh, or song lyrics titles. And um, yeah, I think David Bowie represented for Brian, who's living in a small town in Appalachia, Ohio, um, this kind of possibility to live a different kind of life or express yourself in a different way, um, kind of a fluidity of queerness and gender that was just really exciting and really sort of out there for the time, right? Absolutely. Um, and so he would get, he would tap into that through just hearing, listening to his music. Um, and so, yeah, it became a way to, to kind of think about how to frame these different parts of the book. And, um, you know, and as I was working on it, it was when 2016, I think, when David Bowie died. Yeah, um, I think so. So, yeah, there was a, uh, 
that really resonated for me too mm -hmm. as I was working on it and um, well yeah you think back to the early 70s and he was so bold and beautiful yeah. and you know um, pushed gender boundaries and you know at the time I remember God, I was in high school or late grade school he came out as bisexual and yeah. everybody was like oh my god who would say such a thing right you know and he was just so not just spectacle he was also so talented right. which made which set him apart as well um and just the lyrics to some of his songs and i love that you name the chapters after some of his songs um particularly the title i just think it's absolutely beautiful um, and I think about, you know, that song, Rock and Roll Suicide, and, you know, the lyrics of, oh, no, love, you're not alone, no matter what or who you've been, no matter where or when, no matter where or where you've been. And it's just really beautiful, and I think that that speaks to um, Brian, you know, coming out of the small town and going to New York and being who he was, and then all of a sudden hit with this horrible disease that just mm -hmm. turned his life upside down. Um, so I just the David Bowie references I thought were just genius and really really beautiful and feeling like so alone I think in yeah. this way and, but feeling that connection to this to this music right absolutely and feeling seen I guess yeah and sort yeah. of an anthem for his youth yeah yeah um, as it was for a lot of us right. at the time um, clearly and his music has certainly stood the test of time as well um, so other characters just to talk about. Um, you know, the reaction with Brian's diagnosis was so different for each person. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you have the grandmother. And if you could talk a little bit about her. She was maybe my favorite character <laughs> in the book. Um, yeah. So just to set it up, you know, there's this small town and people are very religious and their religiosity causes them to basically ostracize the family. But then there's um, Lottie, Letty, the grandmother. Letty, yeah. And her reaction was completely different. Yeah, I loved um, Letty as well, and she, uh, you know, I think, I think she knew that her grandson was gay, like, when he was young. Um, she never would have articulated it in that way, but she got him, she understood him, she understood why he had to leave. And she also understands much earlier on, even though people try to keep it a secret from her, I think she figures out what's going on um, for him. And she's so um, protective of him. She could care less what her neighbors <laughs> in the church say. I mean, she stands up for him and stands up for herself. Um, you know, she is this sort of strong um, matriarch in a way. Um, she's out, like, selling her Avon. <laughs> um, <laughs> with her dyed black hair. With her dyed black hair. Uh and she's really this character that I think represents just complete like love for Brian, who doesn't have um, any sort of hesitations or like, r truly does love him unconditionally, you know, doesn't have certain expectations or things that he has to mold to. Um, and then in the end, she's really the one who takes care of him and, uh, you know. He goes to live at her house. He goes to live at her house. Um, you know, I think a lot of the characters have this different kind of um, denial that they hide behind or they live with. And um, I think Letty has a little bit of that denial in the fact that he's dying. Like, it, that's the part that she can't quite get to, that he's actually going to die until 
I think she had hope till the very end. Right. She kept she saying, this is going to be okay. He's yeah. going to be okay. Yeah. Which was so sad. Yeah. And we all wanted him to be okay, <laughs> but knew that he couldn't be. Yeah. You know, this, yeah, it was really hard. The other thing that I thought was interesting is how the main character, Brian, so his former lover died mm -hmm. in New York of AIDS, and he encouraged him to record what was left of his life. And so he carries around, and I picture one of these big 80s giant camcorders, right, yeah. <laughs> basically, um, you know, getting snippets of people, these little interviews, documenting conversations. And um, when asked about it, he says, uh, the camera documents um, how there was not just one way of being. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was interesting because he wanted to interview his parents, his mother, his father. Um, what was that about? Why was that important? Um, well, one, I was sort of thinking about like what Brian is this artist or wanting to be this artist, you know, and moving to New York and yeah, the video camera you describe, I think is accurate. Um, <laughs> and that was, I think around 85, 86 was when, um, you know, home movies became sort of more the rage and people had those like bulky cameras and they would <laughs> want to record Christmas or whatever and then watch it. Um, so he started in that way, but he's trying to do something, I think, um, more artistic, but also to preserve um, these, his life and these sort of what was happening um, to gay men and, to, and queer history. Like, I think Sean, his, his lover, kind of recognized that. Like, you have to tell your story, you know? And I think that Brian, this is his way of doing that. Especially and at a time politically when the country or the powers that be wouldn't even acknowledge right. HIV. I mean, it wasn't until I forget what year that Ronald Reagan even mentioned AIDS. Right. Yet it was devastating the country. Right. And so, yeah, I, he, it was a profound time. Right. And so to have people remember, and which again brings me back to the killer whales. One of right. the things mm. that his sister kept saying is killer whales remember. They remember things. And I thought that was so interesting in view of the camcorder and, and yeah, just how important that was to Brian. And memory is important. How else do we document our history? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think so much of this history can be or was erased or, um, you know, people tried to erase it. And so that queer people have to kind of tell their stories and in all their complexity, you know, um, that it's important um, for it's a sense of like we were here, right? And we're mm -hmm. still here. I think it's important for young people, young queer people, young trans people to know like you had these people come before you That's and right. they're your family too. Like they're your ancestors too. And they, um, like you're not alone and they fought for you in this way. And um, I think just having that sense of, representation but also like history feels really important because so many queer kids like are you know they don't really have that necessarily with their the families they were born into if they're pushed out of those families so to have this sense of like another bigger family mm -hmm. that they come from like the whales yeah i mean we all like need that connection right you know to the people around us and our past our history which is such a powerful thing um 
So I, I really liked that the book was also, at least from my perspective, being around in the 80s when people were dying from this disease, so realistic. I mean, you didn't sugarcoat anything. Mm. Um, when we had lunch, I mentioned, well, this will never be a Lifetime movie <laughs> because it's so real and it wasn't, you know, sentimental in a traditional way, which I really appreciate. Um, and it just, it was just such a good reflection of that time and the fear that just rippled through communities regarding HIV. And that in some ways, there are still some hangovers related to that. Um, like here in Ohio, we have the felonious assault law. You can still be charged with a felony for having sex if you're HIV positive, unless you can document that you have disclosed your status. Um, flies in the face clearly of science and, you know, the fact that if you're virally suppressed, you can't pass the disease. It also, you know, you can be charged with felony assault even if you use a condom. Wow, yeah. Um, so yeah. we still have these hangovers, I think, of the discrimination absolutely. that you so clearly describe in this book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sadly. Um, we're still still living with that. Um, and yeah, I so agree with what you said about young people. Um, you know, I work in the field of HIV, mm -hmm. and yet some of the younger people I work with, it, it still sounds to me that they don't necessarily know of anyone who even died of HIV, mm -hmm. um, even our LGBT folks. And like you said, it's so important to remember this. And, and I just think that, at least from where I sit, it seems like the gay rights movement, we wouldn't be where we are if it weren't for the crisis of HIV, which forced so many people to come out, mm -hmm. maybe sooner than they would have. Um, and just the rage from ACT UP and other organizations yeah. that yeah. really just kind of ripped the lid off of all of this. Right, right. In such a brave way. Yeah, and who really sort of took care of each other, but also made these changes in, um, you know, really pushing the pharmaceutical companies, yes. really pushing the government, um, and just organizing in this mm -hmm. way that queer people hadn't been right. able to before because often they were just closeted. They didn't have that sense, that kind of um, power and numbers, you know. And people's lives were on the line. People's lives were on the line. I mean, to think like, you know, I mean, I didn't live through that experience of having all my friends and my lovers um, die around you when you're 24 years old. Um, and just how, I mean, it's just so difficult to even really understand and imagine, but, um, yeah, when but it was, life it was is just beginning. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right about like young people. Um, I, I teach at Eastern uh, Kentucky university and I taught a class that was like a gen ed class and I showed them, um, we were here by David Wiseman, which is a, a documentary about San Francisco and the AIDS epidemic. And um, there, these were young 19, 20 year olds from most of them from very rural places in Kentucky. They didn't know anything about the AIDS epidemic. Really? Like they had maybe a couple of them had heard something that there was oh. an AIDS epidemic, but otherwise they knew nothing about it. Wow. And their reaction was really interesting. They were, um, <clears throat> they were actually really angry about it. They felt they'd been denied knowing this history of America um, in their schools and, it, and, it, and that it is queer history, but it's not just queer history. Right. It's like a, an American story. Right? Absolutely. That we yeah. all need to know about. Um, wow. It's yeah. interesting. Makes me think about how history is taught in schools in right. general. <laughs> yeah. A lot of gaps there. Yes. 
the other thing that you described um, about Brian's life in New York before he came to his hometown was um, how he was describing, trying to describe, I think maybe to his mother, I'm not sure who he was talking to about mm-hmm. what the epidemic, epidemic was like there, and he was saying, it's boys taking care of boys. And that just just felt like such a punch in the gut because that's so accurate in terms of that time. Um, right. You know, these young men, most of whom were in their 20s, you yeah. know, working in corporate America or whatever, basically closeted during the day and going home and feeding and bathing and taking care of their loved ones and then going back to work like their lives yeah. were not like that. Yeah, um, It's just so, so sad. Yeah, and as you were saying, and when they, but they, maybe they spent a few years when they first got to New York or wherever, whatever city they went to, where it was this kind of joy, and they finally found community, and they could be themselves and go out dancing and have yeah. sex and like yes. Kiss be alive. In public. Be, yeah, yeah. And then to have to become these um, caretakers because they wanted to be, of course, with their their friends and lovers. Um, but also nobody else was doing the caretaking. Right. Things. It's like living like an 80-year-old when you're 22. Yeah. That's yeah. what it was like. Yeah. Um, just such sad times that are just so beautifully reflected. Again, thanks, Carter, for being here to talk about your wonderful book, The Prettiest Star, again, by Carter Sickles. Um, it'll be available at Downbound Books in Northside in mid-April, I think. Yeah, it comes out April 14th. Thank you for joining us on The 12th Story. To make sure you catch every episode, subscribe through iTunes or SoundCloud, and your good words are better than any advertisement. If you like what you heard, tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile LIB. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Special thanks to Linda Sider of Caracol and author Carter Sickles. The Twelfth Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. The literary center of Cincinnati, the Mercantile is a 184-year-old working library with more than 80,000 books available to members. The library organizes book discussion groups and writing workshops and welcomes thousands each year to its author talks, lectures, and other civic events. Harriet Beecher Stowe and Herman Melville, Colson Whitehead, and Margaret Atwood all have spoken at Mercantile events. Visit us online at mercantillibrary.com where you can learn about and register for all our upcoming events or stop by the library. We're at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and we always welcome new members and guests. You belong here.